0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Reshmaoui, and I'm joined by part of the cast and crew. Alistair Roberts uh, has joined us. Matt Anderson is doing uh, some sort of shenanigans somewhere. We never really know what he's up to when he's not with us. Uh, it's usually trouble. And then Andrew Wilson, of course, is just... He's, he's
1: probably in time. bed at the moment. He might <laughs> it's be. past might be, 10 but, p.m. here. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Time. But none of that matters because we have an awesome special guest today. Jamar Tisby, longtime friend. Haven't had him on the podcast yet, but we are super excited. If you do not know him, I'm sure you probably do. He is the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective. He is a Ph.D. student in history at the University of Mississippi. His, his, uh, his own podcast, Pass the Mic, is very popular, uh, well-respected, and he's been featured in the New York Times, the Atlantic, all over the place. So really excited to have Jamar on the podcast today to talk about his most recent book, The Color of Compromise. It's has got a lot of conversations going, and we just want to continue that here on the podcast today. So thank you for joining us, Jamar.
2: I've been waiting a long time for this. I'm glad I got finally called to the big show.
0: Oh man, you talking about big show? No, well we, we 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 had to get the right right time and all that kind of thing. But we're excited to have you now uh, today to talk about this book. You get into it in the book, but for our but for our listeners who maybe haven't had the opportunity to jump into it, um, the thesis, like what what are you what is what is the heart argument? Of the color of compromise, and in a sense, what what moved you to write this
2: um, now? So I think you know the thesis, if if we want to put it in academic terms, uh, it's a popular level book, so don't be scared; anybody can read it. Um, is is really encapsulated in the subtitle: "The Truth About the American Church's Complicity." in racism. And so those two words, compromise and complicity, are really what I wanted to demonstrate through the book. So a lot of times when we think about racism, whether it's racism in the church or beyond, we think about the most extreme examples. Um, As we record this, it's just the day after the um, anniversary of the 16th Street Birmingham church bombing, and uh, four little girls killed in a racist terrorist attack. And we look at those attacks they're, they're mightily tragic um, and, and grief-inducing, but we also look at them as, see, those are the examples of racism. That's what racism looks like. What, what, what we leave behind in that kind of assessment of racism is the fact that that area of Birmingham had already been nicknamed Bombingham, which means these things had happened before, and not enough action was taken to prevent them. And so I start the book out with actually a white, a young white lawyer, Charles Morgan Jr. He's reflecting on the events um, just a, a day or two after they occurred, and he asks a question of this white audience he's speaking to in Birmingham. He said, "Who's responsible?" And he said, "We all did it. Every time we." used a racial slur every time we laughed at a a racial joke at someone else's expense. All of these little ways that we created a culture of compromise. And so that's what I intend to show in the book is that throughout history, particularly in the United States, um, American Christians, uh, particularly white Christians, have had numerous opportunities to confront racism where it occurred, but in so many instances instead chose compromise and complicity. Uh, so, so that's kind of the idea behind the book, and I go through literally centuries of, of history in the United States to show how all of these things uh, connect together and where we are now.
1: The conversation that you open up within the book is an incredibly difficult one to have without um, tempers and feelings rising to the surface. It's something that you often see when people are having these conversations online. There's a lot of anger and antagonism raised against anyone who brings forward these issues. It's a very difficult conversation to have. How do you think that First of all, what do you hope that people will gain from having this conversation? How do you want it to see it progress? And what are some of the best ways to um, move towards the conversation, to posture ourselves within the conversation?
2: It is a really difficult conversation. I think um, one of the things we have to confront as Christians in general, and Christians in the US in particular, is a sort of triumphalist reading of our history. Uh, that because we're Christian, because we love Jesus, or say we do, then you know everything tends to work out nicely. Even though there may be a few bumps in the road, we're on—we're all on the right trajectory and the right path. Well, you know, in a grand eschatological sense, that's true because of Jesus, and in spite of us, right? Um, but when when we look at um, the actual history. It's pretty dismal if you look at U.S. history and particularly uh, the the church. Um, oftentimes, what we're talking about when we when we talk about race is that the the church, the white Christian church, was on the wrong side of justice issues many many times, and. Um, what I talk about at the beginning of the book is, you know, a, a lot of people talk about this idea of white guilt, you know, bringing up these conversations about race. is just about making white people feel bad about themselves. It's not productive, et cetera, et cetera. And I contrast white guilt with godly grief, um, which is talked about in uh, Corinthians. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians about their sin, about their failings. And he's, he's brokenhearted that he has to do it because he doesn't want them to turn away from Jesus, Um, but then he rejoices because they receive his words and um, it produces godly grief, which leads to repentance. And so that's my hope with the book, is a godly grief that leads to repentance on the part of white Christians in particular. But for all of us, the idea is that after you read about centuries of where the church has missed it on race, that we would be um, motivated enough and even righteously angry enough to to act right now in the present.
1: Now, you're writing this as a Christian theologian. Um, What are some of the tools that you think that Christians approaching this conversation have that those who aren't Christians don't have? I mean, I think, for instance, of the Old Testament narrative, where we have a very brutally honest history of the heroes and their feet of clay. Um, What enables us to tell the history in a way that's truthful and in a way that um, moves beyond some of the impasses that you find elsewhere in the society.
2: Well, I think um, it's very prevalent in the Christian tradition, the idea of the importance of remembering. Um, Derek, maybe you have a great book to recommend about a biblical theology of memory, because I think that would be fantastic, yeah, right? That, like, be, um that would be great. If it, if it may already be out there. I want to read it if it is. Um and 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 the 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 importance of remembering, right? Right. He, uh, God prefaces the Ten Commandments by by saying, "I'm the Lord of God, your God, who brought you out of Egypt." Right. Remember what I've done for you, where you've been in the past, and and because of that, obey me. Right. So, um, you know, Joshua setting up memorial stones, right? All of these things in, for Christians tell us about the importance of history. So I, I really think that we have actually a theology that that encourages us to remember. Um, Beyond that, we also have this ultimate hope uh, that no matter how things look right now, that there is a day of renewal coming, a day of remaking and recreation coming. And I really think that is um, deeply embedded in the black church tradition. uh, Throughout slavery and segregation and all forms of oppression, we've been able to develop and to cultivate a deep, rich, long history of Christian faith. and then, of course, all kinds of ideas of reconciliation and repentance, um, and I think particularly salient for this topic is is uh, a doctrine of confession, and being able to admit when we've fallen and made mistakes.
0: Now, that's that's important And the, the, the issue of the issue of memory. I think uh, different kinds of retelling of history. I think uh, I think of Psalm. There's that Psalm pair. I can't remember if it's one hundred five and one hundred six or one hundred six and one hundred seven. I'm assuming. Alistair knows <laughs> I um, should know I don't. <laughs> you should Okay, I just remember I remember I had a class with Dr. Uh, Carson talking about the two kinds of stories that Israel could tell about its history as a nation and one was this nice kind of the positive story about the Lord's redemption and his preservation and the way he took them out and his faithfulness. And it's kind of a, it's a, it's a kind of a, from, from sea to shining sea story of, of like Exodus to, to the river Jordan, you know, the, the Nile of the river Jordan, God's glorious salvation. And then right next to it, is this other psalm where it's like, oh, the other side of that was we were dragging our feet and we made some idols along the way. Oh, and we might have worshiped a few extra gods. Mm. And, and, and it was this, it was again, it was, it was, it was the same story. It was just the other Mm. half of it. Uh, and both sides were true and both sides were part of their collective memory as the people of God. And both sides were actually supposed to move them to worship God. Both as wow. his faithfulness, as well as his uh, long-suffering mercy towards them, and so I, I, I think that element. Um, as I was reading your book, I thought of that uh, as as uh, it was definitely it was definitely the it was definitely the more of the second psalm uh, uh, <laughs> yes. there on, on 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 the story right from the beginning. Although there were ho- there were there were moments and there were glimpses of, of that other side, and I was I was heartened by those. Um, I'll just ask you simply, uh, kind of maybe, a simple question, maybe not that deep. But as you were preparing to write this, so you're 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 studying, you're, you're getting your PhD in history, all this kind of thing. But you were prepping for this. You said this is a kind of an overall survey. But I'm wondering for you, what what chapter? So you start from the founding on to today. Um, which of these chapters? Which of these sections were maybe the most? Um, surprising for you in your own research uh periods of history where where you were where you were um it was just either eye-opening you learned something new or it was just uh it was it was more surprising than you than you'd realized before like you knew there was bad stuff but you didn't realize it
2: was that bad right yeah that's a great question um so uh, historians, like theologians, we, we're, we're very specific. Um, I think there's the idea that historians know everything about history, right? Like name a person or a place or a date, and of course you're going to know it because you study history. Not the case, not the case at all. Um, so I am a second half U.S. historian focusing particularly in the 20th century, particularly in the post-World War II era. So that's very specific. When I was writing the book, I had to go all the way back to the colonial era. So we're talking, you know, 1492 and Chris, Christopher Columbus. We're talking, um, uh, you know, the, the period when, when Native Americans were still uh, a, a larger population and, and that dynamic between Europeans and Native Americans was even more salient than between Europeans and Africans, right? So um, I, I had to learn a lot. Part of the stuff that, that really surprised and stuck with me was the brutality of enslavement. So we, we have this sort of vague notion that slavery bad, right? Like it, we, it's put in this category, but we don't often think about the specifics of it, right? So going to museums in Charleston or the, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in uh, Washington, D.C., and seeing child-sized manacles you know that would fit on the wrists of you know people under 10 years old reading the stories of rape um, that that enslavers perpetuated upon uh, the the enslaved uh, young girls you know 10 11 years old um, reading about family separations of course lynchings were, were some of the most brutal because it, it combines the the fear of of white supremacy and Jim Crow with the absolute violence that is necessary to maintain unjust power and, you know, cutting off ears and fingers and people keeping them as souvenirs. And and then your imagination starts to wander, okay, if, if a family kept this, where did it end up? You know, was someone cleaning out the attic a decade later and be like, oh, what's this and toss it or did they pass it down as like an heirloom you know some so those kinds of things are are what's really difficult about history and i try to actually explain them in in some detail not from a sense of sensationalism but to to help us feel the human story and the human pain of this in order for us to be like no more we can't we can't possibly tolerate this or go back to this you know, or, 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 stop, um, our struggle against this.
0: And and it really, the weight of the weight of what people had to look past the weight of what had to be ignored, just the, uh, that's, that's active. That's an active, um, ignorance. It's an active blindness yes. that is part of what's, str- what I was, uh, when I was reading that section and, and, um, yeah, that takes a lot of work. Uh, it takes yep. a lot of work to not see in a lot of ways, Uh, those things as painful.
1: And then just thinking about in terms of the larger history of um, African-American slavery, just how recent, um, when you think about emancipation, it's only 150 years ago um, compared to 400 years ago, um, 250 years of that time was um, slavery. And so it's not distant history.
2: Not at all. There's a there's a story I tell in the book about the rape of Reese Taylor, Br- brutal story of a gang rape of a black woman who never got justice, um, although uh, a woman you may have heard of Rosa Parks uh, was sent down to to help her with her case. And um, Reese Taylor, this event occurred you know, decades ago, but Recy Taylor only just died uh, December of 2017. Um, so she was alive to see the first black president, which was a huge thing for her. But, you know, and then when you think about the generational impact, right? So even though Reese Taylor finally passed away, she still has family and friends who remember this. Um, one perfect example of the sort of generational trauma that racist violence in particular produces is I'm I live in the Delta and, and in my county a uh, hundred years ago, occurred one of the most violent and um, destructive white race riots in the nation's history. It's called the Elaine Massacre. Elaine. And it occurred in 1919. So it's 2019. We're doing all kinds of commemorations and whatnot. But in this um, massacre, the rumor spread that black sharecroppers were, were um, organizing for an armed rebellion, like a like an army that was uprising against white people. And so white people came in from Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, converged on this tiny little farm town and slaughtered over 200 black men, women, and children. Um, that was a, hi- a history that for decades was hidden, but now they're having sort of like truth and, and reconciliation kind of talks. And what struck me was the children and grandchildren – of the families involved in the Elaine massacre, I'm talking about the black families, they still feel it. They're still reeling from it. They're still trying to get truth. They're still trying to get justice. They're still trying to get um, out of poverty, which is, you know, that was was the quote-unquote sin of these black sharecroppers. They were organizing to get fair prices for the cotton they themselves picked. And that's what instigated the violence. So all I'm saying is, no matter when these events occurred chronologically, the impact is still felt uh, across generations emotionally, spiritually, and materially.
1: Approaching these issues as a historian, how do you tell a big story of an immense enormity, some absolute, um, I mean, immense evil that was um, perpetrated upon particular people groups? And how do you maintain that along with the integrity of all these little stories. So the story of America is bound up with all of these issues of racism and oppression and slavery, but not in an indiscriminate way. The way in which the history of, let's say, Michigan is bound up with this is very different from Virginia or Mississippi. Um, And then different people would The story of America in different ways. Some tell it as a nation of immigrants. That's not the story for um, African Americans, nor is it the story for the first um, um, colonial groups, nor is it the story for Native Americans. And it seems to be a struggle between these, the telling of history. People want a unified, single narrative to get something salient about American identity, but yet it seems that every one of those stories. Occludes something or um, exclude something. How can we tell that story in a way that puts the finger clearly upon what was done, by whom, to whom, in a way that's not just about race in general, but about very particular groups that did things to each other and particular things that they did, and in a way that maintains the size and the significance of what that was, how American identity was bound up with it, but also the ways in which... It wasn't the entirety of the story. There's other parts of the story along with that.
2: Right, right. Well, I think it's very clear to set expectations. So I hope I laid the groundwork in the introduction, in the first chapter, to say this is A, a historical survey, so it's going to leave out a lot more than it includes, um, and and B, that I have a very specific point I'm trying to make, which is to demonstrate Christian complicity and racism. And so there are all kinds of factors on gender and class that I don't go into, even though they're all sort of wrapped up together, hard to separate them. Um, But I do try to tell a general story through particular examples. And those examples are, are, are pretty deliberately chosen to span geographic regions, time periods, uh, religious traditions, different denominations, things of that nature. So the idea is that even though we're not telling every bit of every story, you get the sense that, you know, no matter where you want to turn, what state, what time period, you know, what body of, of worshipers, this issue of race is one that is always salient and, and so often depressingly uh, people are choosing um, power and money and comfort over justice
0: yeah it's the depressing regularity of it the weird uniformity despite all the particulars is is uh i mean it's one of those fun, it's one of those things is that you know a theologian you, you start to like well, the doctrine of sin. Is pretty universal. It's it it does it does play out that way. It's kind of always ugly wherever you go. Um, that this this raises one in, interesting issue, though. I was I was thinking the the challenge of of history telling and the particulars of this um, in an area where this is your specialty is the, the back half of the twentieth century. Um, I, I would imagine that as you tell the story more of the disputes you've maybe had I, or maybe maybe this is not the case uh i would imagine that a lot more of the disputed area would be those areas that are still in a sense living history where i remember it differently so so for instance i i read your section on uh on the on the, on um like religious right and, and evangelicals and reagan and that was a really different uh understanding of the way uh I'll put it, well, so my, my story's maybe a little different. My parents came here, were Arab and Hispanic, uh, Honduran. My parents, my dad came here as a, a political refugee in the 1950s when he was a kid. And he became like a Reagan supporter in the 1980s, particularly because of the anti-communism, because he saw you know, more and more Central and South American countries going under with communist regimes saw Cuba, saw the Soviets, was like, nope, that's bad. And so he was, I mean, anti-communism for him was just straight up, no, I don't want my country to go communist. And so that was what that was for him. And that's kind of how I've always understood it. But then, he, you know, you tell this other side with, um, with you know, hidden kind of like, in a sense, dog whistles, anti-integrationist subtext. and like, okay, there's some receipts there the the struggle with that i would imagine how do you kind of push back on or how do you respond to somebody who's saying like well jamar that might be part of it but are you sure you're not just like the guy with a hammer who sees everything as a nail and isn't telling the whole <laughs> thing on that i mean that's, i would just imagine like how how do you how do you how do you
2: yeah that's great that's great framing what a what a powerful important um story that you told about about your father um so yes, you're right. The 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 more recent history that you tell the more controversial it's going to be, right? Like yeah. like um there's a sense in which you feel like you don't have as much skin in the game for something that happened 150 years ago. Yeah. But if it's a movement from the 60s, 70s, 80s that you lived through and that you were part of, like the rise of the religious right or the moral majority or something like that, yeah, it's going to raise a lot more ire, which has been my experience. If people, I mean, people really ride along with the book through the Jim Crow era. And then once you start talking about... um a little bit on the Billy Graham part, but but really even more recently from from the 70s on up, um, that's where most of the pushback has come. Where again, like like you're saying, people remember it differently, and they say this race stuff wasn't part of my rationale for supporting a Republican, or Reagan, or, or or whatever it might be. And I'm like, that's. That can be totally true, that that didn't sort of consciously enter into your reasoning. All I'm saying is that in your support for this person or these policies, this is what also came with it in terms of race. And and by the way, there are a lot of other people who recognize this, which is why today the Republican Party is almost completely comprised of white people and um, why uniformly black people are the most partisan uh, racial group. We tend to almost always vote Democrat. And that's not because we've been duped or anything like that. It's because of some of this history where there's so much racial baggage that, that goes along with, um, we're talking poli- particularly in political terms, but it could be economic policies and, and a host of other things.
0: Right, right. Which, so that raises another question. I'm just going to go for it. Um, with, with that is I would imagine on the critical end... So you make, as we start to get even more recent history, <laughs> the most recent history in the book is, is, is the election, the most recent one, 2016. And so you, you, you kind of get into some of the dynamics there. And it is, it is funny. I will just say it's an interesting uh, thing to watch history you lived through on Twitter now in a book as <laughs> history. That is just the weirdest. Yes. Uh, like it's a real it's a, time. It's a real time. It's, <laughs> it's a trip but um I would imagine so so some of the pushback on that because that's where you make some of your most pointed ooh that cuts commentary um is the argument is uh given trump's uh statements, some of his stated policies that were that were were in anticipation at the time, um, given that you know the eighty one percent vote the eighty one percent of ev- white evangelicals who voted for him. Uh, the argument is that it, it showed, at the very least, a complicit indifference to, uh, to the, the repercussions that might be coming or probably were coming for uh, black folks or other persons of colors, Hispanics, Arabs, people from Muslim countries, etc. So, so that's that argument, okay? and that's cons- consistent with that, that complicity um, uh, premise. What stops somebody from applying that same rubric to, like, like you just said, something like, I think that the rates for the last 30, 40 years, black folks have been voting for Democrats uh, at like something like a 90% rate or something like that in the last, I don't know how many presidential elections. What is to stop somebody from looking that and saying, okay, if a vote for Trump is evidence of indifference to the blight of black folks, uh, why is a vote against Trump not evidence of indifference to the plight of the unborn, who the Democratic platform is just totally all the way for, and it's and it's and if, as Christians, which and we have we share we share pro-life and 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 commitment commitments that way. I know it's something you care about. How would you push back on somebody saying, "Well, why not give the same calculation and assumption?" That these folks are conflicted and just making a really cruddy choice between, I don't want to be indifferent to them, but I don't want to be indifferent to them. Ah, so I'm yeah, sure you've thought of good. this. I'm curious what, what you'd say.
2: Yeah. I mean, in my experience, the lever, the hinge point for most Christians, particularly white evangelical Christians, is the abortion issue politically, right? And so, and so what do you do about that? Because there are, there are so many people who have it locked in their brains that I absolutely cannot vote for a pro-choice candidate because that is murder. That is baby killing, right? Um, and that's the calculus. And, and it's, 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 it's important. It's a worthy topic of conversation. But a couple of the considerations would be um, if we assume, which I hope we do, that black people aren't dumb and just being duped by Politicians. No, no, absolutely. Then there has to be some sort of good reason that black people would vote Democrat continually, even for the pro choice party. And I think the answer to that is relatively straightforward is that uh, black people tend to vote on multiple issues on multiple fronts. So for a lot of white people, white voters I talk to, it's a simple one issue vote. And based on that one issue, they're going to vote Republican or Democrat. Um for black people we think about uh the pro choice pro life question we also think about um the person's stances toward funding public education or criminal justice reform or um gerrymandering and voting rights uh we think about their support or or not of social support systems like welfare and medicaid and medicare so all of those things go into that equation plus on top of it i think it's increasingly clear it's it's there, there's always there's always been in a bi biparty party system there's always been one party that sort of made overt appeals to racism and one party that was not perfect <laughs> by any means um but but at least made gestures and overtures to be more inclusive uh for the last 70 to 80 years or so The Democratic Party has been the party of inclusiveness, or increasingly so, and increasingly so, the Republican Party is the one that is appealing overtly to racism and white supremacy and white nationalism and racist tropes. So if you are a person of color and a black person in particular, how could you possibly vote? Okay, I'll give you one example and I'll shut up. Um, In the state of Mississippi, where I go to school, there was uh, a a, uh, 2018 Senate race. In which the Republican candidate was a white woman named Cindy Hyde Smith, and the and the black candidate was uh, um, Mike Espy, and the Republican candidate went to a fundraiser, and when she got up to speak, she said of the host who who brought her in for that fundraiser, if he invited me to a public hanging, I would be in the front row. That's what she said verbatim, Yikes. and this is in. This is in the state of Mississippi with the highest recorded number of lynchings in the entire country. This is in the state of Mississippi, the only state that still has the Confederate emblem in the Canton of its flag. And so, yeah. and, sh- and and guess who won the Senate race? Yeah. It was this person who said, who joked about being in the front row of yeah. a lynching. And yeah. so when you're faced with that choice yeah, as a black person, like it's just, it's not even hard.
0: Yeah. I, I, I hear that, and that's exactly why I don't make the assumption of like. Again, don't think black folks are dumb, voting the way they do. I don't think it's some simple uh, indifference. I, I, I just I figure somebody's going to push back. And what are, I hear that, and I understand, and I, and at the same time saying I understand somebody who is still moved by the sheer weight and the sheer carnage of 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 the current abortion rate at like. However, many thousand a day, right now yeah. in the U.S. and I think
2: and I that's, think that's a that's a failure to understand the complexity of the way um, injustices intersect. Right. So, mm. the actual abortion act is downstream from a lot of other things that led a person to make that choice. For instance. Um, we've seen that abortion rates go down during Democratic presidencies or when Democrats are in control. Part of the reason for that is increased uh, funding and support for social support systems like welfare or um, food stamps or whatever it might be that help somebody who's in poverty, who thinks they can't afford to raise their child, be able to raise the child, right? Um, Or better education systems, which lead to better outcomes in terms of graduation rates and jobs that lead to supportive families, et cetera, et cetera. So we can't just tackle these issues in isolation would be one thing. The last thing I'll say is, I tackle this in the book, is how did that abortion issue become the issue for so many Christians who lean conservative? And there's a whole history to that that I will encourage you to buy the book to pick up and read to find out. Not 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 going to give that for, give that for free. Okay, right,
0: right. And when
1: you look at the history of um, Black American relationship with the world of politics, I was struck by this recently going to the Civil Rights Museum in um, Birmingham. That just seeing the scale of disenfranchisement in, enfranchisement mm-hmm. in politics. Yes. That when you're dealing with that sort of background, your relationship with the political parties. Will be framed in very different ways from right. those who haven't had that experience.
2: Great point. Great point. Right. Yep.
0: Yeah. And and that, thank you. That was helpful. I I just figured I'd raise it. A lot of folks are still wrestling with that, and I think just in terms of getting folks to um, understand where each other where each other's moral calculus lies in terms of like, okay, I actually really do care about what you're talking about, and I and at the same time, I just feel like I'm in this damned if I do, damned if I don't, um, position, uh, and so, um, yeah, no, that's helpful. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for, thanks for addressing that, Jamar. Um, let me ask you, turning now, not to the, not to that point or the elections, you have a lot of, um, concrete suggestions in the back end of the book. Let me ask you, in your experience in, in helping, in helping churches just, um, understand each other better, folks uh, either within churches or neighbor churches understanding. We got a lot of pastors listening, a lot of local folks who just want to be better neighbors to each other uh, beyond a vote, but still in concrete ways, actually that maybe impact your local neighborhood more than a once every four-year election. Um, What have been the two or three things you think I have seen the most blessing come when people will engage in x y and z i'm just just in your experience
2: that's a good way to frame the question um and it makes it harder to answer for me Uh, (laughs) sorry yeah no it's um so so yeah just just to zoom out a little bit the book is structured intentionally to uh the first 10 chapters or so are are mainly history right yeah and i hope it's a You know, a narrative history that's compelling and interesting to read, not some sort of dry history textbook type of thing. Um, No, it takes you along.
0: I will just say that for the for the listeners. It takes you along at a clip and you're surprised at how quick you you go from A to Z with a lot of information. So I'll I'll back
2: that. I'll back that on that. So, Shout yeah, out to the going. editors. So you're like Shout out to the <laughs> editors. It's good. No, no, yeah. <laughs> um, so but 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 then the last chapter called The Fierce Urgency of Now ends with practical action steps. And and I will uh, tell you be tell folks who haven't read the book. I focus mainly on on bigger structural Institutional kinds of changes, and there's a whole reasoning for that. Where, um, as Christians, we tend to focus and focus on the individual and the interpersonal, which I say is necessary, but it's not sufficient when it comes to racial justice. Um, so that's when you know when we come to the ideas of you know what are practices that in my local community are most helpful. It's very contextual. Um, it, it very much, you know, me being here in the rural Delta versus you out on the West Coast with all these, you know, different uh, racial and ethnic dynamics um, versus someone across an ocean. Right. All of that's going to be different. But at, at the same at the same time, you're right. There are some best practices. One, it, local politics is where it's at. I mean, so much. Uh, one, one of the big things is getting involved with the local school board. Uh, so our our children are coming through this and in the U.S. system, uh, public schools in uh, rural or inner city environments tend to be the ones that are most populated by racial and ethnic minorities also tend to be underfunded, have the less qualified teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you want to do something about that, show up at the school board meeting, just even just to see what they're talking about. And it might may, may come that you have a strong opinion on something that they're about to talk about and you get to weigh in. Um, Another thing I encourage folks to do, if you are interested in criminal justice reform, get involved and at least to know and vote for your local county prosecutor. Mm. Um, These people wield enormous power. They are the ones who decide... Uh, which cases will go to trial, which ones they're going to offer a plea deal, how much sentencing to recommend. They are the gatekeepers. And in so many instances, what they do is they run on their conviction record, which a plea deal counts as a conviction. So they'll say, oh, I have a 90 or a 95% conviction record. And what they leave out in that is that they've done all these plea deals for people who are innocent or guilty of much lesser crimes, but they've given them the plea and they've given a poor person, typically a poor person in a very scary situation, they're in jail, they say, you can go to trial and risk 10 years in prison if you lose, or you can take this plea deal and get three years. And, you know, what are you going to do, right? You feel trapped. So so knowing, are these folks... um, you know, really punitive? Do they, are, are, is it a humane kind of criminal justice they're practicing? Are they interested in reform, voting mm-hmm. in those elections? Uh, so, so those are some really concrete local ways to affect systemic and institutional uh, disparities that, that anybody can do, pastor, congregation member, anybody. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that's
1: helpful words systemic and institutional and these sorts of words are words that often appear in conversations about race and the language of complicity which you have on um, in your title is something again that is associated with that we're bound up with systems that are often oppressive that are involved with forms of um, persecution with racism with um, exploitation etc i mean i think of the history of the slave trade is one that it happens on the doorstep here as well. I mean, I'm just down the road from Manchester that was built in large part on the wealth formed from slave trade. The um, port of Liverpool as well. It's just up. It's not far away, and that's part of our history too. And um, there's also other parts of the history just down the road. In um, I'm in Stoke-on-Trent, and Wedgwood was very much. Um, campaigning against the slave trade. But it's something we're all um, bound up with our history. It's not something that we can get a distance from. Now, as we think about Christians and our conversation about sin, it's not something that has a very clear um, way of grasping hold of and speaking about the sin of complicity, of what it means to be bound up with systems that are oppressive, that are involved with these sorts of institutional evils. How can we develop a theological language to speak about these things? And how can we develop a Christian response to systems that are far more vast than even the systems that existed in from the 17th century onwards surrounding the slave trade? Um, think about vast... Um, structures of our economy, that it's very difficult to see where oppression is coming in. How can this conversation guide us more generally into a deeper and more searching conversation about sin?
2: That's fantastic. Um, so this idea of systemic and, and institutional uh, sin, and, and in this case, racism, that's a, that's a huge one. Um, to, to better grasp that, distinction, I encourage folks to read another book uh, Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, really lay out well in, a, in an American white evangelical context how Christians some Christians think about race in these really hyper individualistic terms. Um, so so that's that, that's to help give some context. The other thing that, a fundamental understanding that we have to have is that racism works itself out through policies. So it's not just, people being mean to one another, it's people setting up policies and structures and practices that continue to widen inequalities between people groups that disproportionately affect people who don't have much money or people who may have darker colored skin, right? Um, This was explicit in the Jim Crow era when you had literally signs over drinking fountains saying blacks only, whites only, right? When you had a segregated school system by law. But one of the things that we also have to recognize is that schools are still segregated, And why is that? It's not just some sort of arbitrary self-selection by people. There are actual routes and channels and practices that lead to this and the fact that as schools are segregated, schools that are um, wealthier and white get the more resources and have the better outcomes from from certain standpoints, right? So so we got to understand that this stuff works itself out through policies. And I do think there's a theology behind this of of sort of being wrapped up in – a system and being complicit in a system that is unjust. So we can think about, I think it's Daniel 9, where, where he prays the prayer, I and my fathers have sinned, um, where he's he's confessing his own culpability, but also that of the generations before him, that he's part of a stream, part of a flow. Um, the very idea of, of original sin, right? Like, like Like in Adam, in the first Adam, we all are guilty we all are sinful but it's in the second adam which is not our work <laughs> that's what someone else did it's someone else's uh you know uh, s- sinful act that that puts us in the stream of the first adam it's someone else's righteous act that puts us in the stream of righteousness by faith and so this idea that it wasn't all just dependent on our actions i think even more concretely the old testament talks a whole lot about um Uh, the Lord really hating unjust rulers, um, hating unjust scales, Uh, the idea that that there are systems that people with power can put in place that lead to oppression for the poor um, and for the marginalized, like that's all over the Bible. Um, The fact that Jesus announces his ministries saying, I I came to proclaim good news to the poor and and liberty to the captives and, and to set it free. Set free them who are in bondage, right? Like all of this stuff, it's all of a piece. And we just, one of the things that we have to do better is to listen to the theologies of marginalized and oppressed people groups. Uh, not just black people, but, but um, how do women uh, understand the Bible. How are the poor understanding the Bible? How are people in um, South America and across the globe understanding it in situations uh, far more precarious for Christians to live in than than yeah. we are in the United States?
0: Yeah, folks, just listening to the Bible in different places, speaking to one another, hearing what the Lord's saying in different places. Um, man, that's helpful, Jamar. Uh, this whole conversation has been super helpful. Sadly, I think it has to end. We gotta, we gotta respect your time. Um, but Jamar, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a long time coming. It was quality yeah. uh, when it arrived. <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, but once again, folks, the book, "The Color of Compromise: The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism." You can pick it up. Most places books are sold. I think, and certainly. I mean, just, just Google it. You'll get it. Uh, and we'll have, it, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, whether or not you agree with every line, you'll be challenged and convicted and, and come away uh, better informed about this important issue today. So Jamar, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Hey, this was fun, guys. We, we should definitely do it again. I appreciate the invitation. We should definitely do this again, and even before you write a whole
0: nother book. Uh, <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> so um, if you're listening in and you've been around this long, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for continuing to listen. Uh, and a special shout-out to our Patreon supporters for supporting, helping keep the lights on. Um, if you want to join that, again, the link will be in the show notes at mereorthodoxy.com. You can rate and review us at iTunes. It's also helpful. But for now, this has been Mere Fidelity. Thank you for joining us.